John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 1277.IS5411, certificate number 48596, Tanzanite. No doubt there's a rare beauty in your life. Today you can indulge her with a gemstone a thousand times rarer than diamonds at an incredible price. I'm assuming that you bought your wife a wedding ring. I did. What? Is uh, it a family thing? Was it a family stone? No, we went and, and bought uh, an engagement ring and then a wedding band. It's a diamond. The engagement ring is a diamond? Yes. And what was the process like uh, of buying a diamond? Like how educated did you put yourself? Did you make yourself? I didn't. And it was a little... Did you go to the place in the mall? Unpleasant. Uh, we ended up at... Some, we looked at some different jewelers and we ended up... Mindy had a very specific custom setting that she liked and wanted. Of course. Um, but Mindy. <laughs> isn't that just like her, oh, to like a thing and then want to have it on? She's like, oh, I want this thing. <laughs> uh, but for but for the gym, we had some, I feel like we had some like wholesaler type mall option. Did you have a friend in the diamond business? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so we ended up at some kind of weird kind of local world trade center type mall thing where somebody in an office was showing us. But it was specific to like gems, uh, this mall, this world trade center. Yes. And maybe I got taken for a ride. I have no idea. What was unpleasant about it? I don't remember any kind of. Like car dealership, high pressure kind of sales pitch. But I just remember not knowing what I was doing and kind of having the vague idea that the diamond industry was kind of shady, that they managed false scarcities, that they had kind of created the appetite for diamond rings out of wholesale, that maybe a lot of these were blood diamonds from (laughs) some Civil War wrecked African nation, that, you know, a lot of them pump up the investment value of the gem, which is perhaps not true. And who knows if the appraisals, I just knew that I had no way to gauge any of these things. And I just had to write a check. And there's that whole two months salary thing, which I think is also an industry creation. Pretty genius. Create some fake etiquette around the idea of spending a ton of money around something. Like it's impolite to not fly coach 
or something, you know, like. Well, the, the whole, I mean, you hit on so many aspects of it just in your own personal experience. And I think that that's true for a lot of people buying gemstones, but you know, the whole idea of a diamond being the symbol of engagement is just completely a modern creation, a right? modern creation, and a marketing and department, a completely creation? manufactured, um, idea. The diamonds were not, you know, in any way, sort of a traditional stone of marriage or engagement. But De Beers had a slogan, right? Yeah. yeah. A, a, diamond a diamond is, is forever. forever. And so they create the idea that, you know, well, if you want your marriage to be long lasting, what better symbol than the most resilient stone, That's which right. we happen to have a cartel of monopolistic control over. Right. Now, what they what didn't the say odds? is that also, you know, a, a diamond cuts glass, like a lot of marriages, <laughs> or like the, like the voice of your spouse, it can also cut glass. Uh, but you, you have an experience that is, um, that's shared by a lot of people. You're really out of your league. Because I feel like even with a car, that's something you're going to have to do every five to ten years. The internet was in its infancy. You have a sense of culturally what best practices are for buying a car, even if you know neighbors who got taken or whatever. Right. The diamond buying thing you'll probably only do once unless you're going to get married nine times like Larry King. And that, you know, the true coat, the true coat. Comes from the factory. It's standard, it's standard <laughs> equipment. Well, of course, we had to add the we had to add the five seventy five for the undercarriage. But the thing about uh, gemstones is that uh, there are a million varieties, and uh, and their value uh, is determined largely subjectively. Um, gemstones are we 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 talk about them in terms of carrots. And uh, and that's carrots with a C. That's one of the four C's of, of gemstone buying, John. What are the other three? I don't remember. One is color. color. Oh, I, I know them. Cut, color, and clarity. Cut, color, clarity, and carrot. And cut, color, and clarity are all more or less subjective criteria. Carrot is just a way of describing weight. Um, a carrot is about 200 milligrams or a carat, rather, is 200 milligrams. So we talk about a one-carat diamond, a two-carat diamond. That's just a description of their weight. And it's very different than carat with a K, which is a measurement of gold purity. It's confusing that they're the, the same and related but different. Right. 18-carat gold, 24-carat gold are descriptions of how much impurity is in it's the It's kind of like crab with a K. Like the K is there to tell you one thing. This is not the same as crab with a C. And <laughs> that's what's not, going on here. This is different. This is metal metallic purity. Don't think this is weight. But crab with a K means that it's some kind of fishy... Protein. Yes, it's pollock paste. <laughs> Whereas carrot with a K and carrot with a C, you know, they are actual, they're actually both measurements of a thing. Of, of actual valuable objects. Right. Whereas color is very subjective. And within Can't the, you hold up the thing that you use to see if your teeth whitening <laughs> is working? <laughs> well, here's the, uh, the interesting thing about color in gemstones. Um, color is prized most highly for its mediumness. A gem that has a, a, a very light color is less interesting and less rare, but also uh, a gem with a really highly saturated color is less less valuable. And what you're looking for is a kind of clear and shimmering color in a gem. And so 
Why can I not be judged for my averageness? I mean, I, I, would, I would love that if I could be judged for my medium non-notability. Ken, your mediumness is one of your main selling points, at least on this show. I would say when it comes to being about 50%, I'm 100%. <laughs> you are 100% medium. <laughs> if I bought you a medium shirt, would it fit? Oh, yeah. Every, I, every medium shirt fits me perfectly. You are 100% just medium. Everything about me is totally average. You could just buy shoes that were marked medium and pants <laughs> yeah, that were marked that's medium. That's what I do. <laughs> I have a website where I buy medium shoes. <laughs> there, are, there are precious stones and there are semi-precious stones, and both of those are completely arbitrary terms. When we think of precious stones, it's a pretty small group of stones. Diamond, ruby, sapphire, emerald, these are... Precious stones. But that's just by convention? That's just by convention. mineralogical that separates them from jade or whatever? Their preciousness is uh, is a thing that is determined by a a sense of their rarity. But, you know, diamonds are actually not especially rare. You hinted that De Beers had a monopoly on them and— They've just been trickling them out. Yeah, restricted our access to them. Um. There, so rarity of occurrence is not really a determinant of value anymore, or even a determinant of whether it's precious or semi-precious, than almost anything else. I mean, an amethyst is a semi-precious stone. A uh, you know there and, and oh, and there are also gems which are not. Gems, typically, that is a descriptor of a crystal, a crystal formation. But yes. there are also rocks, which are semi-precious, oh, like yeah. jade. I mentioned jade, and that's not a crystal. It's not a crystal. Rock. It's a rock. And also, pearls are not a crystal. They're not even a rock. They come from an animal. Yeah, they're an aminal. That seems they're like, like a bezoate. That would be like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> a bezoar. It would be like if one of the birthstones were like, shark's tooth necklace you got on Maui. <laughs> that's right. Um. But uh, but gems are rare in that they're an earth, that uh, they're a rare earth, although not actually a rare earth, which is a different kind of earth. It's a kind of metal, and it's a what? It's Manfred Mann's band or something. <laughs> well, no, a rare earth is a kind of uh, an element, or you know, a, a, a um, chemical elements that are used in industrial processes, and they are processes. And they are increasingly valuable because we use them a lot in the manufacturer of consumer electronics. We shouldn't do that. They're rare. They are. Extremely, it says right in the name. <laughs> they're extremely rare. They're also. Uh, they were also a band. Um, but the rare earths are uh, are only like found in um, in kind of a very limited number of places in the world, and it's become another commodity that it, that that maybe ties us to China. And I, I want to do an episode of the omnibus on rare earths. So I don't want to get too deep into what rare earths are, but they're rare and they're earths. Uh, um, yeah. I'm not going to get earths on an engagement ring for my wife. You know, the thing about the, some of the seas is that they're, they're subjective enough to the viewer that Mindy, for example, chose a slightly larger jet stone, even though it had an impurity. Right. The color, everything was good except for this one impurity, and she found that the impurity was hidden pretty well by the cut right. and did not phase her. And if she was an appraiser, she had a little loop. A, a loop, an eyepiece on an eye, and she was peering up over it, you know, she would be forced to reckon with it. But as, as the consumer of the gem, she plans on owning it her whole life, and she's 
happy enough with her one impurity ring. I guess, you know, she's got a husband with more problems than that. Sure. More mo, mo diamonds, more problems. The one impurity is in the <laughs> ring is the least of her trouble. Uh, purity being very subjective. Um, actually, the, the, the rating of clarity in gems is based on what is visible to the naked eye. So we always see gemologists and, and jewelers looking at gems through a loop, but, uh, but that is just to see more deeply a clarity that, that where the grading of it is really, can you hold it up and see it? And that is all about the, the clarity of the gem because impurities will dull the shine or dull the, the refraction yes. of the crystal. But you can, as as Mindy found, have gems that have impurities that don't affect their their um the refraction. And in that case, really that's the that is the subjective aspect of clarity. So she did a pretty good job of picking a diamond that that has that that refractive um uh, aspect without, you know, uh, and and still a good price because it had this visible imperfection. We'll never know. Who, who, it could be a cubic zirconium from QVC <laughs> and we could have got rooked. We have no idea. This is the other thing. You can manufacture diamonds out of just uh, minerals and high pressure. And they're exactly, chemically, they're exactly the same. Right. What you have, but you, what you have purchased is the knowledge that this did not come out of a geological process in the ground. Well, which, which I don't care that much about, honestly. And you shouldn't because a lot of precious stones are actually treated uh, by heat or by infill of, of you know, imperfections. Uh, but a lot of stones are cooked. If you, if you were to buy a ruby or a sapphire, you could be pretty well assured that it had been heated in a furnace and that heating will you know, has an effect on the, on the crystal and creates a, a clearer and more vibrant colored, huh. you know, the, so. That doesn't a, feel like cheating to me. A lot. Well, because, you know, these stones are heated in, sure. in the, their could formation. Have, could have been heated anywhere. We don't know. Right. If you can clean up a stone by putting it in the oven for an hour, uh, why wouldn't you? Do? But if you heat it too much, it's not going to be that rare anymore. It's going to be medium rare. Really? I guess semi-rare. There's there's imperfection in more than your wife's engagement ring. I get, I get this all out here. She doesn't have to put up with this at home. Uh, and all of this comes into play in the topic of our show today, which is the precious the precious gem tanzanite. Is it actually precious? Well, so my first exposure to tanzanite, as is true for many people, was on a cruise ship. That was true for me last week. And when you when you cruise for the first time, as you just did, or for the eleventh time, as I just did, show off. You cannot escape the presence of tanzanite because cruise ships are made of tanzanite. <laughs> they are. It's the only way they float. It's the only way they can accommodate more than two thousand people and never run out of of prime rib. The water slides are made of tanzanite. I have no idea. It's all done by magic. But tanzanite is a gem that um, that is marketed to you pretty aggressively, not just in cruise ships, but in all kind of resort um, situations. Every, every single day, there would be a flyer in my room. You know, one one useful one actually telling me the ship schedule and events and so forth. Right. And another one telling me about the different tanzanite raffles that would be available to me in the shops on deck three. 
So there, a place I, didn't, I did not want to go. There is a, a, a sort of common association between resort life and cruising life and gem, precious gem sales, jewelry sales, expensive men's watches. Well, you've pointed out to me that so much of, the, of cruising and, and similar kinds of vacations are based around drinking and day drinking. Yes. That I assume what they know is they have a population that will make Bad, <laughs> bad, bad choices. Make, yeah, you're you're already, you've already had like three cocktails before lunch. We can probably trick this guy into buying uh, some some costume jewelry. If you if you take a week long cruise and it costs you five thousand dollars, say for a for a cabin, if you really think about seven days of um, the seven days worth of gasoline just just to move the boat around, your portion of it, but also all the free meals, all the free entertainment that you get on a cruise ship, $5,000 isn't really that much money for a, a week. Do you think cruises are a loss leader and the Tanzanite is paying for, is subsidizing our tickets? The number one way that cruises make money is selling liquor. The number two way is in their casinos. I was going to say casinos. The casinos yeah. and gambling. I mean, liquor is by far the greatest money earner, far more than the casino, but casinos are next. On this last cruise, we really beat feet out of Florida, even though it really meant some choppy season. I, I was told that part of it was because the cruise line really wants to get you out beyond the 12-mile limit or whatever it is where gambling can take place right. they on can't, the first night. They can't open the casino while they're still in whatever territorial waters. They have to they have to get out there, and, that's, and they generally... You put the pedal to the metal. But cruise lines and resorts also have um, cooperative arrangements with luxury item boutiques and sellers in all of the different ter- – every island I've ever docked at on a cruise ship, every nice hotel I've ever stayed at, there's a vendor there selling expensive uh, jewelry. And that is, I think, a component of the fact that the the typical person that has the money to go on a cruise is a retired middle class or upper middle class person, and they are also the people that are sort of uh, the most liable to be looking for jewelry um, because they have disposable income and they are already they've already shown that they are ready to treat themselves right ready to. They've already shown their um, possibly iffy judgment by going on a cruise. Right, and, and ready for a little self-care in the form of buying jewelry. I've, I've noticed that uh, I react very differently to movies on airplanes. Like I'm more forgiving of a movie if I'm watching it in an airplane seat. And I think there's some... I, 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 there's less oxygen. That's part of it. Like there's, <laughs> there are actually physiological and neurological changes that happen to you when you fly that uh, I think affect that kind of response. Yep. And maybe it's similar on a cruise ship. You are unmoored from land and your normal uh, reservations and hesitancies and skepticism that you would have about sales pitches. You're you're ready to have uh, a nice Dutch guy try to sell you on a on a Tanzanite bracelet. Well, and often you're freshly retired and you want to buy something nice for your spouse because of all the pain and suffering they've experienced throughout your working life. Or even on the cruise. Right. Like if, <laughs> if, if being lo- locked up in a little stateroom with your spouse is not going well, you're going to have to make it up to her or him somehow. But one of the hard pitches that you'll see, and I'm sure you experienced in getting this flyer every morning, but the, the pitch, uh, l- like any sales pitch, really intensifies the closer you get to a purchase. <laughs> One of the main arguments they make is that there is a resale value to this, to these gems, right? That this is one of the classic ideas of, of a 
little pouch of gems is that it's a it's an investment. An investment. You haven't bought. You haven't just bought a luxury. The money's not gone. Right. You, you just turned it into something more beautiful than money. Uh, hard blue money that you can enjoy and then pass on to your children. And um, you know, it's a lot easier to carry around a little velvet poke of sapphires than it is to carry around its equivalent value in gold or apple stock is ugly. Bonds. Ugh, it's the worst. How are you going to give? You know, you're going to hand apple stock to your beloved. No, actually, it'd be kind of killer. I mean, I would rather get Apple stock than most <laughs> yeah, jewelry. Too. I'm sure your kids would too. But um, but tanzanite in particular, being a gem that a lot of people haven't heard of, uh, it's uh, it's a gem that the sales pitch is um, has been kind of pretty well honed because the idea of it being uh, being rare is not untrue. And we're not familiar with it because tanzanite is a very, very recent discovery in the world of gems. I was just thinking that it's it's kind of like a novel virus or bacteria and that you don't have any inoculation against it. You don't have a set of arguments in your head for how to tell a guy you don't want tanzanite. Right. Because you don't know what it is. And that takes you down a path where he's going to tell you whether you want to or not. He and And he or she has a real patter about it. And it goes something like this. Tanzanite is called tanzanite because it is, well... For two reasons. It's called Tanzanite because Tiffany calls it Tanzanite or oh, called it Tanzanite. Is it like a tr- it's like a trade name? It's like deciding that uh, Chilean or Patagonian toothfish is going to be Chilean sea bass now? That's right. Oh. The Tanzanite is actually a, a, a mineral called blue zoisite. Zoisite? And, that doesn't seem like a word. Well, that's the problem. Tiffany didn't think so either, and they felt like uh, selling zoisite was not as uh, – that just wasn't a sexy enough name. It was only discovered or and identified in 1968. Tanzanite is only as old as I am. Oh, it's named for a guy named Sigmund Zois. It, it was originally named after uh, and and zoisite is uh, is a general class of elements uh, of an element of a crystal, uh, and it's you can find it. It's mineable in a lot of different places, including Washington State. We have we have um, zoisite here, but. This particular blue zoisite. That's true in gems that, um, by the way, that uh, like what you think is a mineralogical name is actually not just a, it's not a, a, a chemical structure. It's a color, right? right. Like uh, rubies and sapphires are both just corundum. Right. Emerald is just beryl if it's got a nice green tint. That's 100% if, right. If it's a little more blue, it's just beryl. Right. right. Yellow beryl. I mean, it's right. it, the, 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 um, the value of it, and this is what I meant by color and, and – um, and clarity, like these are, these are completely subjective. Like where, when does beryl become an emerald? Even ruby is, a, is, I mean, it's not a trade name. Nobody trademarked ruby, but that's essentially what it is. Yeah. It's a way of selling someone corundum because it's a nice red color. And blue zoisite is tanzanite uh, because the only place it's found, as far as anyone can tell, on earth is in an extremely small little region of Tanzania or Tanzania, depending on whether you are going to practice some weird pronunciation of countries. I said Tanzania when I was a kid. <laughs> Tanzania. Because every other word in English, you know, Romania, sure. Pyromania, uh, all the Romanias. Right, which is a great Def Leppard record. I thought Pyromania the, the was an Eastern European dessert. You know, it's <laughs> some kind of cherry tart. 
but yeah, the, it's it's Tanzania. It's, Tanzania. it's a combination of Tanganyika and Zanzibar when the two countries were united. That's 100% true. They got and the tan you, and the zan. You sound exactly like uh, somebody that would be a Jeopardy champion with that kind of obscure knowledge. Did I just steal something you were about to say <laughs> no, on the no, show no, and I, look I, smart? Oh, no, okay. are you kidding me? Look smart. That's the kind of thing I know too. Which, but I have no purpose for knowing it. I never made a single dollar off of it. No, you do. Until in, now. In podcasting That's form. That's right. Uh, Tanzania is a country in Southeast Africa, sort of su- South Central Africa, um, south of Kilimanjaro. And in the Northeast corner of Tanzania is a region called the Mirarani Hills. And within this little area, seven kilometers by two kilometers. Oh, it's tiny. All the Tanzanite in the world can be found. That's like a little bit bigger than, well, that's about the size of Central Park. Isn't that right? About, seven, a, about a mile by four miles. That's yeah. not that different than... Central Park. Wow. And it I, was... I'm, I'm in love with Tanzanite. Like if they had if they had led with this on the ship, yeah. I would have a suitcase full of Tanzanite right now. Well, and this is part of the argument for its rarity because compared to other gems and other minerals, it is extremely rare. Uh, it is controlled within a single nation and within a tiny, tiny, tiny little area. And that must mean that some very rare geological thing must have happened to get yep. your zoisite that color. You can you could say that it appears in bondinaged uh, pegmatitic veins only in this this very small uh, region. I'm very unlikely to say any of those <laughs> words because I don't know them. And even after you said them, I'm not sure how you would spell them or use them in a sentence. So geologists have their own lexicon, clearly, that that, uh, you and I could sit and try all day to figure out. But then gemologists have an additional additional layer of terminology to describe these things which are, you know, geologists are dealing with scientific descriptions of minerals. Gemologists deal then with a further aesthetic. Aesthetic, right. And gemology and gem grading is also a thing that over, I mean, uh, over millennia, people have been valuing certain stones and minerals over others. But uh, but it's really only in the 20th century that gemology has become a discipline. So this uh, this month, we are working with the internet Deal of the day site, meh.com. The ones who own my giant head. And last month, uh, we told competing stories, and you, the listener, got to choose who you voted for uh, when you went to meh.com slash omnibus and bought a various uh, thing there at meh. I don't think you can buy Ken's giant head, but you buy interesting products. And the fix was in because John... Defeated me soundly. That's right. 69% of the voters of the purchasers used coupon code John, and only 31% used coupon code Ken. Because my story was super fun, and... Uh, and it had train robbery in Yeah, it. train robbery. Everybody likes train, train robbery. Now, this month, we're doing it again. Ken told his story a couple of days ago at our, on our Tuesday show. At great risk, I told the story about wart cream. Wart think- cream, and involving your wife and daughter. That's so, right. A, pretty, a cast of thousands. Cast of thousands. And so I'm going to tell a story. And now, now uh, last month it was it was stories of childhood amusement parks, and this month it seems like we're 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 going on a medical theme. Okay. Um, I'm going to tell a story. Let's see. Uh, in the I've always had a, a lot of sort of dental uh, issues because I 
I fell at a young age and broke my front tooth out. And then when it came back in, it had, I'd had a high fever and it was, the tooth was a little bit discolored and et cetera, et cetera. And at a certain point in my teen years, a dentist, my dentist was named Dr. Darling. And Dr. Darling was like one of these cosmetic dentists that, that drove a Porsche and he had a lot of big theories. And he wanted to break my jaw and reset it in a different place um, so that my uh, my bite was improved because I have a my teeth clang on one another. And Dr. Darling had one of these dentist's offices. It wasn't a utilitarian one where the dental assistants wore white lab jackets and 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 spit shields. It was one where all the all the uh, employees were like somehow like beautiful exotic people. Everyone had their hair in a turban and people had big earrings and it was uh, they were wearing saris. It was a really glamorous spot. And I was there one day and they weren't able to get to me right away. They put me in the chair and they left me unattended. And they they'd put on a a, a gas mask to prepare me for the procedure. I forget what the procedure was going to be. They put on the gas mask and it had a little trickle of nitrous oxide. And the nitrous oxide was meant to, you know, sort of prepare me for what was to come. But I was, I was going to sit in here for a little bit while it, while the gas took effect. Or I, I don't remember exactly what the logic was. But I lay there for a while, kind of in this slightly nitrous-y um, headspace. And I started to look around the room, and behind me on the table was the nitrous oxide infuser. And I noticed it had a couple of knobs, and one of them was uh, for oxygen content in the gas, and one was for nitrous content in the gas. And the, the, the machine had two uh, tubes with little ping-pong balls in it. And if you turned the knob, the ping pong ball would raise up in the tube that you were increasing the percentage. And so looking at the machine, you could see that the oxygen ping pong ball was floating on this cushion of oxygen and the, the nitrous ping pong ball was way, way down in the tube. Well, that doesn't seem fair. The device was in reach of me sitting reclined in my chair. So I reached over naturally and started turning the nitrous up and turning the oxygen down. And after not very long, I had completely inverted the percentages so that I was breathing mostly nitrous oxide and with, with very little oxygen mixed in. And I lay there in my dental dental chair, absolutely in a kind of Jabberwocky universe. I had visions of sugar plums. I was giggling, laughing uncontrollably. Really just a, a period, I can't even tell you how long I was there. But I was having the ride of my life. And finally, the dentist came in and saw me there kind of convulsed in laughter and looked and saw that the machine was set in this potentially disastrous way. And, but it was set so that the proportions were exactly opposite. It looked like the machine was set right, just backwards. And you know, rushed to correct the issue and said, Oh, that was incredibly dangerous. Like you could have, I don't know, asphyxiated. I doubt, I doubt that. 
but I still look back at that as my um, as maybe the day that I that I ultimately you know got that comeuppance over the medical profession. No matter what they do to me, no matter how many times they overcharge me, no matter how much pain I suffer at the hand of dentists, I still feel like I uh, I got the better of them. Whose story do you enjoy more? Tuesday's story of the upset pharmacist or John's tale of dental uh, hedonism? Uh, go to med.com slash omnibus, and when you make your purchase, you can use either code John or code Ken to get $5 off your order and have your uh, vote registered. That's med.com slash omnibus. Clearly, code John. Use code Ken. There was a jeweler by the name of Robert Shipley, uh, an American who kind of uh, was was good at selling jewels, but realized he didn't have enough knowledge, and he sought he set about to learn all there was about the the science behind gems, and he formed an organization called the American Gem Society, and the American Gem Society was a group that you know that was that set as their goal to bring science to the rating of gems because of this thing that you're describing there's so much confusion in in a consumer's experience and so much opportunity to be kind of rooked or you know sold a bill of goods that the gem society tries to uh, give a consistent rating to gems and they've become along with a with very few other gem raters um uh, become kind of an international. They've established an international society when or an this, international standard. When did this change happen in the industry? Uh, well, it is it, this like 20th century, or it's it's uh, so the American Gem Society was only f- uh, founded in 1934. Well, that's I guess that's about the same time, I and mean, it's the it's the kind of the end of that change of engineers right. trying to trying to fix the world. Right? right, exactly. Like if we just, you know, if we, we just, just had the right scale, apply a standard rating system. If I could just use system. my slide rule here, everything would be fine. The American Gem Society is based in Las Vegas, which increases their <laughs> <laughs> their reputability. That makes them seem very legitimate to me. But you know, they certify jewelers, they certify uh, gem appraisers. Um, there's also a, uh, there are only a few. There's the Gem Gemological Institute of America, which is based in Carlsbad, California. Which also, I mean, it offers, it's basically a college of gemology, offers all these different classes uh, to teach people to uh, apply standard ratings. Now, the, the problem is that there was recently a scandal where some gemologists were bribed and uh, sort of discredited the whole, I mean, there were authorized uh, gemologists that were giving ratings to stones that were, uh, they were being paid. The whole process does scale. seem... If there's really if there's really no government regulation and it's just a, right. a industry board with its own set of certifications, that's going to be prone to that kind of. But thing. But you know, how do you do it? I mean, and there are a couple of others: the European Gemological Laboratory and the International Gemological Institute. But all of them are, as you say, sort of um, self policing. Yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, how do you how do you tell me which diamond is prettier? And a, a lot of uh, what makes gems. Uh, beautiful is also a component of the, how they're cut and displayed and, uh, and polished. And these are... That's all subjective. All subjective. They are real skills. I mean, to to cut a diamond beautifully is a, you know, is a, 
an ancient practice and one that, I mean, you can give the same stone to two gem cutters and get two very different results. But again, you actually can't give the same stone to two different gem cutters. You Once the first guy cuts it, you're done. Earth two, <laughs> yeah, the, the same. You need a parallel universe. Same stone, but on Earth two. <laughs> so tanzanite. What you what you discover about all of these gems is that aside from their industrial use, uh, their only value is in their beauty. The problem with the way that tanzanite is marketed in a lot of these resorts is that it is very specifically marketed as an investment. And that investment, unlike diamonds, which have a, you know, there's a global market for diamonds. And the scarcity, although we recognize it is kind of a De Beers game, Mm -hmm. um, you know, diamonds are, uh, they're, there's a, a universal standard about like what makes a good diamond and what makes a bad. And you, you know that the resale value of diamonds is, you know, you're, ne- you're probably not going to get your money back in the short term. It's not like there's a diamond market where every day you check the newspaper to see what diamonds are going for. I saw the Adam Sandler movie about this, and it seems very easy to lose your shirt. You can lose your shirt. Reselling diamonds. With Tanzanite, there is this pitch, because it is only mined in this one region and and presumably that um that tanzanite reserve can be exhausted and because tanzanite is still a relatively unknown gem outside of these these small markets there is a a, a sense a pitch that you could speculate on tanzanite that um, that's, at, that's not how you want to invest, though. Now, this thing is kind of new, and there's no market for it. But what I'm suggesting is, what if there were? <laughs> <laughs> what what the what the suggestion is is that as Asian markets open up, hmm. and there's more and more demand for gems, and it is recognized how rare tanzanite really is, perhaps your investment in tanzanite. Will You're getting it on the ground floor. That's right. Right now, somehow, it's only on cruise ships. And it really is pitched to you that way. Get in on the ground floor of the Tanzanite revolution. I'm looking at pictures of it, because we haven't really talked about the qualities of Tanzanite. It's it's very lovely in these pictures. It's a, it's a very deep, brilliant blue color. It is. Uh, it, maybe that's why Tiffany was into it. It is. That's their it, that's their thing. It's very it's very Tiffany-esque. Tiffany-esque. Um when when it comes out of the ground, tanzanite is what's what's called a trichronic stone, which means it or a trichronic stone rather. Which means it has uh it, it refracts light. It, it makes you want to use marijuana. It does, it's, dude. It's the, it's the most trichronic. Uh, it reflects the, the 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 shape of the crystal reflects light in sort of three different directions, three different colors, and that mm. is you know it creates a kind of blue, a kind of violet, and a sort of brown color. When you bake tanzanite again in the oven, when you of- totally <laughs> bake this chronic stone, uh, it changes its chemical nature and becomes a dichronic stone. So what you, you get, get rid of the brown? You get rid I, of the I'm brown. Assuming? That's uh, exactly okay. right, dude. And that is true. Around the world, people are trying to get rid of the brown. <laughs> uh, and at that point, you get this like intense sort of violet, uh, some, sometimes burgundy color of tanzanite. 
And it is, it's a, you know, it's a gorgeous stone and it can be cut in all these faceted shapes. Um, can it be large? You can find quite large tanzanites. Um, but I assume the pricing is also based on how much you can gouge a slightly tipsy cruise ship passenger on, right? Right. There are a lot of, uh, a lot of tales of people buying cruise ship tanzanite. I remember being on a ship where uh, where the in-room television, closed-circuit television, had a, you know, a chipper uh, gem salesperson who was saying, do you want to go back to your hometown and be the one person that has Tanzanite, or do you want to go back to your hometown and not be the one person that has Tanzanite? I think you want to go back to... <laughs> You know, I like to, how those are the two self-evident categories of human. <laughs> Do you want to go back to Sioux Falls and blow your neighbors away with Tanzanite? And it really, you, they were painting a picture. I mean, they knew their audience better than I did, but painting a real picture of who it was that was that was interested in buying Tanzanite. So I'm, this is not alcohol at all. This is elder abuse. That's what they're doing. It's an older crowd on a cruise ship that you can get to give you bad information on the telephone. Or you can trick them into buying a gem they've never heard of. And it and, and it, there are there are a lot of um, of sort of uh, like scam debunkers, a lot of uh, bad bad reviews on Yelp uh, <laughs> of places in Curacao or uh, you know or Bonaire who are selling. And people feel pressured into buying Tanzanite, but also a lot of happy customers who found Tanzanite and and love their gem very much. And the thing is, Tanzanite isn't a scam. It, right. It is a valuable gem, and potentially, uh, as as supplies run scarce, maybe one that will appreciate in value because gems go in and out of fashion. Right. This is the other crazy element. I'm, d- diamonds, and I mean crazy element. Why don't I get a bell? Sometimes I, I should get bells. It's not an element. It's a compound. The uh, crazy compound. <laughs> this is a crazy <laughs> compound. Um, di- diamonds are forever, as we've established. But other gemstones come and go. And who's to say that tanzanite won't be one of the things that comes and goes? Uh, I mean, it seems to me like at this point it's a little bit sullied by having been the by having now be synonymous with sales pitches at resorts. In 2002, the American Gem Trade Association, a new uh, consortium, a new a re- new wrinkle, its spe- the skeptical head, uh, and the American Gem Trade Association is the um, is the organization that determines birthstones. Wait, which, which is another stones are not some ancient astrological thing. There's just a trade group with a brochure. Is that true? <laughs> I had no idea. The American Gem Society. I'm sorry. The American Gem Trade Association. So there is there 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 is a a a, a birthstone element that that is that dates to the Book of Exodus. The twelve tribes of Israel are related to the 12 signs of the zodiac. I, I had no idea. Yeah. So here, this is... This. <laughs> You're such an Issachar, John. You're such a Zebulun. This is not, this is not strictly a, about Tanzanite anymore. 
Uh, and the 12 signs of the Zodiac and the 12 months uh, or the 12 tribes of Israel were symbolized sort of um, concurrently on the breastplate uh, of Aaron. He had the, he had twelve right. stones. He's got, and yeah, the and the Bible kind of lingers on what the twelve are and the order and so forth. That's right. And that's where birthstones, uh, the tradition of birthstones, comes. That's from? kind of the the ancient uh, justification for birthstones. But um, but it was really in 1912, the uh, the jewelers of America met in that that ancient uh, temple, the state of Kansas. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot more stuff got decided in the Midwest back then. It really did. And they just picked uh they just sort of officially adopted a list of the 12 stones that symbolize the 12 months. And it looks like they were smart. I'm looking at a at a, dis- a difference between the medieval list and the Amer- the the Topeka list or wherever mm-hmm. this was. And they've gotten very smart. They split up diamond and sapphire yep. into two different months. Yeah. So they can they can sell their higher their higher priced items twice a year. There is a sort of Eastern tradition also of uh, of like the the zodiac connection to stones, but the ones that we think of when you when you give a uh, like a, a birthstone, sure, um, these are th- this tradition tradition goes all the way back to uh, to Kansas in 1912. 1912. Someone someone is alive today who is older than the birthstones. But the American Gem Trade Association changed the list of birthstones in 2002 to include tanzanite. Wow. Which is now a December birthstone. That instead of what's December normally? Turquoise. Uh, right. Although, uh, well, also, so traditionally it was ruby, and then in 1912 yeah, they, made it, they, they made it lapis lazuli. Yeah. And then in 2009 or 2000, what did I say? Two, oh, two. They made, they added tanzanite. This seems crooked. Like, uh, this is not like a bunch of scientists getting together and stroking their chins and dropping Pluto. This seems like somebody got a payoff from the Merirari Hills. So now, wait a minute. You're saying that there's no scientific basis to connect a gemstone with a sign of the zodiac, <laughs> Ken? That seems a little bit, uh, a, a little bit wild, even for you. Well, I mean, the only reason we have birthstones is there's some sense of historical tradition. I think most people who get them assume there's not some particular uh, November-y quality about topaz. Right. It's, they think it's something that the Emperor Julian... It's, it's like on your fourth anniversary, you right. get clocks right. or, or whatever, right. you know? If it, you die in March, somebody sticks a a, 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 gra- a <laughs> garnet up your nose. The only value <laughs> of it is the illusion of some kind of historical provenance and authority. Right. And if you can just, in 2002, be like, yeah, we, we got too much tanzanite. Uh, now December is asterisk and tanzanite. And tanzanite. That uh, kind of, now I'm skeptical of the whole procedure. Uh, but it's, I mean, these trade organizations are the ones who are determining whether these things even are valuable at all. So tanzanite, um, tanzanite now has, uh, has joined the ranks of the top 10 most valuable gemstones. This makes me very angry. This is like, it's like the Curly Joe Dorita. It's like the late arriving, the, the, the new guy that sings lead for Journey mm. or whatever. Yeah. It, it's the- uh, I'm proud of that guy. It's the Sammy Hagar of, of birthstones. <laughs> the most expensive gem is the Blue Diamond. Also, it's uh, one of the great Long Winter songs. 
Um, but uh, the blue diamond, um, there's a uh, there's a diamond called the Oppenheimer Blue, which recently sold for five hundred and seventy five million dollars. Wow, who has that just in the couch cushions? Well, and that's the thing: the people that are buying these stones are buying them for bragging rights. There are so few blue diamonds, true blue diamonds, that um, that there's this small group of, of global billionaires who anytime a blue diamond comes for sale, they all gather around like, like zombies around a big plate of brains and are like, blue diamond, ready to bid one another you know, up to nobody's interested in wearing see. it. Nobody thinks of it as an investment. That's they just want to be on the list of 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 twenty people or whatever it is that has one of, those. of owners to put it under a glass case. I guess in the entryway of their of their Palm Springs home. That 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 diamond sold for almost four million dollars a carat. Um, and this is why we don't tax the rich. That's right, because we need them to create gemologist jobs by yeah. pouring their money into. Blue Diamond auction. Think purchases. about how that five hundred million dollars trickled down. Think of out of work auctioners <laughs> at a you, at an off ramp. You roll down the window of your car, and some guys like need twenty five cents, twenty five cents, kind of twenty five cents, kind of fifty cents, fifty cents, fifty cents, fifty cents. Anything helps? Anything helps? Fifty cents. So I have seventy five, seventy five, fifty cents. In China, that's my auctioneer beggar. That was bit. great. That Thank was you. Really nice. Thank you. People are going to love the auctioneer beggar bit. In China, jade uh, is a you know has a very symbolic role in uh, sort of Chinese culture and different grades of jade are extremely valuable now. Uh, there's a kind of jade called imperial jade, which is, uh, which is like in some ways the second most valuable gem in the world, uh, at, uh so selling for all, over $3 million a carat. Then the pink diamond, the ruby, of course, ever popular, the emerald. These are all the what we would call the precious stones, not the semi-precious ones. And then uh, alexandrite, which is a kind of— Alexandrite needs a new agent. If it does. If I can't even picture it, and it's one of the most valuable gems. Alexandrite is, is, uh, is like the paint job on, on like a souped-up uh, Toyota-like— what are, what are those ones called? Oh, the Scion. It's like a souped-up Scion that has one of those paint jobs that changes color as it drives by. Oh, right. It's, it's purple like, It's purple if you're in front of it and green yeah. once you pass that's it. That's exactly right. It looks like right. a soap bubble. So Alexandrite has kind of a refractory quality like that. Uh, there, are, uh, there are other gems that you don't think of as being extremely expensive. Uh, Musgravite, which also has only been... Known to the international market since the late sixties, the fact that all these high end ones are kind of new makes is another thing that makes me skeptical. It's more like you know we need a new brand for Christmas. Yeah, that's right. Muscovite. It'll be the new thing. We'll tell everybody it's Muscovite. So by comparison to some of these gems that sell for for a million dollars a carat or even fifty thousand dollars a carat, tanzanite is a remarkable value. Ken, it's only twelve hundred dollars a carat now, and this is the pitch. Um. If tanzanite's only $1,200 a carat, but black opal is $9,500 a carat. Yes, but tanzanite's not going to turn into black opal. I guess... If you heat it. (laughs) (laughs) And that concludes Tanzanite, entry 12772.IS5411, certificate number 48596, in the omnibus. Future links, we were products of our time. 
As a result, we had a presence that shames us now on, uh, on social media. Mm. Even before we were ashamed, we knew it was making us unhappy. Uh, it, was, it was making us into terrible people. But uh, in our day, we could be found at Omnibus Project on every social media platform uh, available to us. I was at Ken Jennings on Twitter. You could look up John Roderick as at John Roderick on uh, Instagram and eh, maybe Twitter, depending mm. on the day of the week, Hard depending on his willpower. You can resist Tanzanite, but not Twitter, huh? Uh, I can resist Tanzanite and Twitter, but right now I'm not resisting Twitter. Remember, I am resisting Tanzanite. Remember the famous Oscar Wilde quote where he said, I can resist everything except social media? <laughs> uh, you could email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com if you have something you're dying to tell us now about Tanzanite. And maybe it will show up in one of our uh, monthly addenda shows. Uh, Patreon subscribers can now enjoy a monthly uh, bonus episode in which we discuss uh, esoterica and arcana that we missed the first time around that our uh, awful pedantic listeners have pointed out. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can send us physical items via uh, surface mail. Send them to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. We mentioned, we, we must have mentioned... Zimbabwean hyperinflation on the show because we did. Joshua sent us twenty trillion dollars. Twenty trillion Zimbabwean dollars or twenty trillion American dollars. He sent us twenty trillion American dollars. It's fantastic. <laughs> uh, no, twenty trillion Zimbabwean dollars, which I'm sure is worth like six cents. But uh, yeah, we can quit the Patreon, John. We're trillionaires. Hooray! Somebody else, Hooray! who is this? Grant mm. sent us Ukrainian money. It's one, whatever a Ukrainian thing is, but I can't read Cyrillic. It's not a leva, is it? Well, here, sh- it's, it's not up here. Are you good at, I can read bank. I can read bank of Ukraine, but I don't know what the other word is. It might take me a second. Well, um, while you're looking at that, Grant also sent us a variety of uh, things. That, uh, a, t- a Taiwanese train card, a sticker from Poland, a sticker of an eagle head that says, oh, it's some kind of Polish Formula One team, maybe? Uh, they send us a, a sentence diagrammed and a single Mad Libs page. Is this, is this one Mad Lib? One Mad Lib. I never use that word in the singular. A Mad Lib, not a Mad Libs. Just a single Star Wars themed Mad Lib. So Mar- your daughter can enjoy that. So, uh, so uh, uh, the Ukrainian money is called a hryvnia. Oh, yeah. That, that trips off the tongue. Uh, and it's really, even in its, even translating it from Cyrillic to English, it's nowhere on the note. <laughs> it's spelled H R Y V N I A. Hryvnia. The best fake money we got sent is this million dollar United States bill with Ray from Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Okay. On, on the uh, it's sort of a, like on the a, face on the obverse. Do, does paper money have an obverse? It does. That is a kind of uh, a stylized picture of Ray, but <laughs> she's. she's it's a Mad Magazine style caricature of Daisy Ridley. It is. On the back, confusingly, this million dollar bill says, here is the million dollar question. Will you go to heaven when you die? Whoa. And then there's is several. the million dollar question? And then there's several paragraphs of, of uh, Christian uh, tracting from Living Waters. Now, what does that have to do with com. Ray? It's not clear. There is no Star Wars connection on the back. But some of these are better. Uh, a listener named Christine, because I asked for chick tracts, sent us a chick tract and a bunch of, uh, of other uh, Christian proselytizing materials that she receives from a, a patient. She must be a health professional. She says a patient often sends these with payment. And these are fantastic. One of them, for example, is trivia about the Atlanta Falcons. And it has questions huh. like, uh, who was the first Falcons running back 
to pass 1,000 yards in a season, how many regular season games were won by the 1998 Atlanta Falcons. And then question number four, what do all football players have in common? Is it A, trading cards, B, Wheaties, or C, death? Death. They all die. That's what the reverse of the card reminds us. Yes, all the Atlanta Falcons will die, and you're going to stand before God and give an account for your life. Oh, it's about Jesus again. Yeah, it takes an abrupt twist. I guess at some point, Michael Vick is going to be before the judgment bar, and he's going to have to explain dogfighting. How will he explain it? I don't know, but this it, the, these cards make it seem like his odds are not good unless he <laughs> repents now. <laughs> Repent now, Michael Vick. So, And we also have one Monopoly-style chance card that says, get out of hell free. These are all things I would think you would add to your collection of uh, religious um, ephemera. Yeah, I have a full set of chick tracks now for a forthcoming episode, and I can definitely... I can definitely add some of this. I didn't think it was going to have Daisy Ridley in it, but apparently it does. Nice. There's also the uh, online Futurelings, uh, various consortia of Futurelings who meet on Facebook, Reddit, and or Discord. And as I've mentioned, uh, you know, these are trying times. We are happy that the omnibus can be a balm to the socially distanced. Before it was just the socially awkward. Now it's the socially distanced. Right. Right. the Venn diagram overlaps it does. quite a bit. If you were emotionally distant and socially awkward like me, you can combine both your interests now and be socially distanced. Uh, and we hope that uh, a couple hours of this every week helps. If you, uh, despite the collapse of the global economy, still wish to support the Omnibus, we would love that. Uh, you can do that at patreon.com slash omnibus project. Yeah, we do appreciate it. Future links from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. The lethality of the current flu um, is really yet to be determined. It's not a flu, though. It's not a flu? No. Influenza is its own kind of virus. But isn't this a virus that's adjacent to flus? Yes, it's flu-adjacent. It's flu-adjacent. It's fluid, <laughs> whether or not this is a flu or not. You're going to you're gonna die on the hill of this not being a flu. I don't think it's a flu. Oh, all right. Well, whatever it is, this flu-adjacent bug, uh, which isn't a bug, it's a virus, which is not a... Not an insect. Not a, not a bug of any kind. There's no six legs. Um, maybe, it only, uh, maybe it only affects uh, a handful of us. Maybe it is the, the great leveler. Uh, but we hope and pray that this is a minor outbreak. And uh, that the worst, it will not come soon. But if it does, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. I think that, Ken, you and I will survive to do at least one more episode. But you never know. The, some other cataclysm may befall us. Anything can happen. We're definitely sitting six feet apart now. So <laughs> we should be safe. Yes. I, I remember when I bought this table. Were I was you like, measuring it? I for- could get a smaller table, but I think Ken wants to be a little bit further away. It's never been more true. If Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs>